Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you with us as we continue our series, The End. This week, lead pastor David Fossil lets us know that our study of the end times would be incomplete without a discussion of the Antichrist. Listen as Pastor Dave guides us to a better understanding of the subject, points out what the Bible says about the Antichrist, and then shows us what we need to do about it. We're challenged again to prepare and be ready as we look within ourselves to make sure there isn't anything becoming a substitute for Christ in our lives. Grab the study guide that's in your program. It's going to be helpful to you this morning. If you have a Bible, Daniel chapter 7 is where I need you to turn. That's on page 890. If you're using one of the church Bibles, page 890, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, We are in week three of our series on the end times. Uh, We have uh, covered different major themes that that are going to happen. We've covered the judgment. We've talked about major signs that will occur. Uh, and by the way, just kind of piggybacking on what Dave Sauer said, I actually think the end times are close. The book of Revelation says if the Cubs win the World Series, Jesus is coming real soon. So, uh, And, you know, I'm not going to say anything about the Cubs and the Giants. Uh, you do know that if the Cubs win, though, I'll be unbearable. Uh, you know that. If, if the Cubs lose three in a row to the Giants, I'm going to have to find another church. So just so you know, a lot of, a lot of heavy heart on my... so. Um, today, it, you know, it would be incomplete for us to leave out of the subject matter of the end times what we're going to talk about today. Just to kind of get us into the theme, this movie was released in the 1970s. Uh, it was so popular, there was an Omen 2, there was an Omen 3. Uh, a, a recent updated version of this movie came out, I don't know, three, four years ago. Um, if you've never watched the movie, you might know what it's, it's about. If not, the, the numbers inside the letter O should give you a hint. Those numbers 666. The omen is actually a Hollywood version of what the Bible talks about is the story of the Antichrist. And and again, honestly, you know, a lot of people like when I teach on the end times. It is not necessarily one of my most favorite subjects to cover, Um, but I know it's important. I know it's needed. And like I said, I think it would be incomplete if we're going to talk about the end times, it would be incomplete to talk about what's going to happen without some sort of discussion about the Antichrist, who he is, where is he going to come from, why does it matter, what is his agenda going to be. The Bible says that we as followers should have a basic understanding about that. Unfortunately, way too many of us, even as church-going Christians, we get our theology and we get our doctrine of the end times from movies. And that's dangerous. And so today I'm going to try and give you a a biblical balanced perspective on what this book has to say about this particular issue. Now, I'm not going to go over everything in your study guide, but just real quickly, the front side of that study guide, uh, by way of overview, what does the word antichrist mean? Uh, There's two meanings in scripture for the word antichrist. Let's put it up there. One who is opposed to Christ. Scripture tells us that the antichrist will be the mouthpiece of Satan on earth at some point. His job essentially is going to be to oppose anything church, anything God, anything Jesus. He is anti and completely against the things of Christ. Uh, But another very interesting uh, um, definition of Antichrist, which will matter to us in our application, is that he comes as one who is to be a substitute of Christ for many people. So I want to substitute who Jesus is to you right now. Instead of worshiping Jesus, the Antichrist will say, no, I want you to substitute that. I want you to worship me. 
So that's the very basic definitions uh, of what the Antichrist means. It may surprise you, but there are many names for the Antichrist in Scripture. We have gravitated to the one name Antichrist, but there are about 10 different names. Let me show you uh, in Scripture. He's called the insolent king, the prince who is to come, the one who makes desolate, man of lawlessness, man doomed to destruction, the beast, despicable person, worthless shepherd. And then the one that we have kind of held on to is the one that appears in First John 2, the Antichrist. I don't know why that's the one we've only gravitated to. But just understand every one of these names and all of these passages are talking to the same person, looking at it from a different angle, trying to give you and give me a basic idea and understanding who this individual is and what he's going to try and do. Okay. Now, if you're studying the end times as it refers to the Antichrist, there are three main passages that you have to look at. Daniel chapter two, uh, chapter seven, second Thessalonians two and Revelation 13. Today, we're going to look at the first one, Daniel seven, and then the last one, Revelation 13. Now, going into it, I need to kind of forewarn you about a couple things. I'm going to try and give you a balanced biblical perspective. I'm going to do the very best I can to make it simple, but not simplistic. Now, I I want you to understand, especially if this is your first time through through at Bay Hills, um, I'm going to need you to put your thinking cap on. Um, No other way to say it. The subject matter this morning is heavy. I don't have a lot of fun stories. I don't have any good jokes about the Antichrist, you know. Uh, frankly, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to try and lighten the mood on what is a very heavy, very serious subject in scripture. So I just need to, you to know going into it, what we're getting into. It matters. You as a follower of Christ should have an understanding of the end times and in of particular the antichrist. But I just need you to know the next 35 minutes we're drilling deep. Uh, for a while, you're going to have to hold on, hold on, because it gets complicated and complex. And, but we're going to come out of it. And I hope uh, you will come out of it blessed and have a deeper understanding of what Scripture has to say about this. Daniel chapter 7 is where we're going to start. If you want to turn your Bibles there, uh, Daniel begins in verse 1. Uh, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7, the dream or the vision that he has from God. And here's what, what we far, first read. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind and he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Uh, in these days, uh, before this book uh, comes into, into existence, the Bible, God speaks to many of his, his prophets, many of the leaders through dreams, through visions. I every once in a while have someone say, do you think he still does that today? He, sh- he could. He can do anything he wants to do. Do I think it happens a lot? I don't. I think it doesn't happen a lot because we now have this as the primary source for God speaking to us. But God speaks to Daniel through a dream, through a vision, which is also very typical when when he's trying to give us a hint of what is to come the end times. Daniel wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision, my dream at night, I looked and there before me were four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four Great beasts. It's almost like he's saying it's almost more like a nightmare. And we'll see emotionally what this vision, what this dream does to even Daniel. The four great beasts, each different from the others, came up from the sea. So now what we're going to do as we progress on is look at the different beasts, what they are, what they look like, and what they seem to represent. So let's put the next verse up there. The first of these beasts was like a lion and had wings like an eagle. Remember that reference. It becomes significant trying to understand what that is. I watched until its wings were torn off. It was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being. And the mind of a human was given to it. 
And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs on its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. So this second beast, this bear is stronger on one side than the other. He's leaning on one foot. It's almost like the other foot is injured is the idea of what is being presented here. That also becomes significant in a moment when we try and interpret what's happening here. The next slide gives us the last two beasts. After that, uh, I looked and there before me was a third beast, one who looked like a leopard on its back. It had now notice the number because that becomes significant as a hint later on four wings like those of a bird. And this beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was a fourth beast. This is what is typically called in theology books, the unnamed beast, because it's not like a leopard. It's not like a lion. It's not like a bear. It's this great, huge type of a beast that Daniel can't even, he can't even give us an example of what it looks like, but he does tell us it was a terrifying beast. It was frightening, very powerful. It had large iron teeth and it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other former beasts, the strongest by far. Notice another little detail. It had 10 horns becomes significant when we go to the book of Revelation. Now, here's the summary of the vision he has. Let's put it up there. You've got the lion top left the bear top right, then the leopard, and then there's unnamed beast. This is what he sees. But again, what is he going to do with that? Okay. I, I, I know this is from God. I know it's not just that I had some pizza last night that has unsettled my stomach and my mind's going a little, I, something's going on and God's trying to communicate to me. So I basically ask God, what, what, I, what does this mean? Which is obviously what we would want to know. So we continue to read on in Daniel and in verses 15 through 17, it is explained to him what's going on. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. You know, when I grew up in church um, and I heard my pastor teach on the end times, uh, I tended to think that what he was doing is called fear evangelism. Do you know what fear evangelism is? I don't know if you've ever watched the movie uh, Thief in the Night, uh, but that was a movie back in the 70s. And, and basically what pastors have tended to do with this kind of theme is scare people. This is what's going to happen in the end times. Are you ready? Oh my goodness, you better get ready. And if not, you're going to be in deep, deep trouble. And they kind of scare people into accepting Christ as their savior. I don't think that's a smart move. I don't think that that's wise to manipulate people's emotions. But having said that, let me also say this about the end times is that when you study the end times and what seems to be suggested is coming, what's coming doesn't sound very fun. What's coming doesn't sound very pleasant. What's coming as best as I can tell. And I hope I'm wrong. We're going to have to go through a whole bunch of suffering. And when you start thinking about that and when you start studying that, what happens to you emotionally is that anxiety is somewhat normal. It happened to Daniel. He begins to see a vision of the end times and look at how he feels. I'm troubled and I'm disturbed. So I guess all I want to say as your pastor is to legitimize that occasionally when you study the end times, it, it's okay to have a little bit of an anxiety because it's not the most fun things that we seem to think is coming ahead based upon prophecy. I was troubled in spirit. I was disturbed. And then I approached one of those standing there and I asked the meaning of all this. What's going on? What do these beasts mean? And now watch and begin to, it begins to flesh out what's going on here. He told me and he gave me this interpretation of these things. The four great beasts 
are four kings or four empires, right? Four nations, so to speak, that will rise from the earth. Now, what we see prophetically is that it overlaps history. And here's where it kind of gets interesting. But again, you got to stay careful. I'm going to try and give you some images to follow along. Here's what theologians and historians believe the first beast represents. Let's put it up there. If you're John, uh, writing down notes, that first beast, the lion, represents the Babylonian Empire. If you study history, Babylonian Empire controlled by King Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, King Nebuchadnezzar was Saddam Hussein's hero. Saddam Hussein was trying to restore ancient Babylonian empire. What you see in the shadowed area is modern day Iraq, modern day Iran area in the Middle East. Okay. And King Nebuchadnezzar was basically one of the first guys that had what was called an empire. He had not only had his, his nation, but he started to conquer other nations as well. Um, one of the details about this beast is what it looks like a lion with wings on. So if we were going to draw something, it would look something like this, right? Kind of a strange animal, a lion with wings. Here's what's interesting. When you do excavations today in Iraq, when they have excavated ancient Babylonian empire, you can go to museums in London, museums in Germany. I saw it at the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. Uh, the Ishtar Gates is one example. Ancient Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and his empire. It's, I wouldn't call it a mascot. It's the equivalent of our bald eagle. The uh, bald eagle is kind of an animal that represents our country. You want to know what animal represented the Babylonian Empire? This comes from the Ishtar Gates, ancient Babylon archaeology. Let me show you. Their animal that represented their empire was a lion with wings on it. One of those little details that just makes you go, hmm. Because it seems to overlap perfectly with the vision that Daniel has. The second beast represents the Medo-Persian empire. You see that in the shaded area, they not only conquer what the Babylonian empire had, but a lot more, especially uh, going east. Okay. And then into the tip of Africa. Um, one of the details about history when it comes to the Medo-Persian area uh, uh, empire is that they were a coalition, but very, very quickly, uh, the Persians overshadowed the Medes. They were much stronger. And, and so many history books today talk about the Persian Empire, not the Medo-Persian Empire, which again, going back to the vision, notice this animal is stronger on one area than the other, leading historians and theologians to believe and interpret that that is reflecting the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persian part of this animal is the stronger part. The Mede part is the least strong. Okay, second beast. And by the way, they came right after the Babylonian Empire. Third empire represents the Greek Empire. It's this leopard. Now, uh, more or less the same territory. Uh, one of the interesting details about this empire is it was led by a very young, charismatic, very uh, aggressive soldier. And you will recognize his name off the top of your head. You may not know, but many movies have been written, have shown about him, many books. You know who I'm talking about, right? Let me show you the most recent movie. His name was Alexander the Great. He was the one that led the Greek empire represented in Daniel by this leopard beast. Here's what's interesting about Alexander and keep your eyes on what the verse says. One of the unique details about Alexander is he, he died at a very early age. He was only 30. He was 30 years old when he died. He died with no heir. 
No one to pass on the kingdom to. Do you know what the Greek empire did after Alexander the Great died? They divided the kingdom between their top four generals. Now look back at the verse. And again, many historians and theologians are saying, boy, there sure seems to be a hint that what Daniel is seeing is exactly kind of what happened in history. The last and by far the most important beast uh, represents uh, the Roman Empire. Notice that it's now not only in the tip of Africa, Middle East, but primarily Europe, even going into England. Uh, this unnamed beast is by far the strongest of them all, the most terrifying, the most frightening, incredibly powerful, crushes and devours all of its victims. And again, that's exactly what the Roman Empire did. Okay, uh, they were by far because of their military might, because of the new weapons that they had come up with. They just crushed every nation. There was no competition. They would literally would just take over. Now, this is the beast that Daniel asks the most questions to. I'm getting close to getting back to the Antichrist, but this is important. When he asks questions, details are given in the prophecy and in the vision of Daniel that it seems to say that this Roman Empire will have three distinct stages. Three distinct stages. Stage number one, let's put it on the screen, is the Romans control the civilized world. That was the time of Jesus. That's exactly what happened. But of course, the Roman Empire at one point in time fell. The Roman Empire at one point in time was no more. The second part of the prophecy and the vision of Daniel is this. Let's put it up there. Uh, ten nations from the former Roman Empire would form some sort of coalition, an economic coalition, a political coalition, a military coalition. So stage one, Roman Empire. Stage two, somewhere down the road, uh, some nations that used to form the Roman Empire will come together in a coalition. That's what Daniel 7:24 says. Ten horns representing these ten countries are ten kings that will come from this kingdom. Now, a hundred years ago, we thought this could never happen. Never happen. But, but here's what's interesting. When the Roman Empire fell, they fell to a group from Northern Europe called the Huns and the Goths. Normally, when you would conquer someone, what would you do? You'd form your own empire. That's what you would do. Not the Goths. Not the Huns. You want to know what they did? This is what they did. Let me show you. They took Europe, the former Roman Empire... And they began to divvy it up into what we now call countries in Europe. It was after the fall of the Roman Empire that the country of Spain and Portugal and France and Belgium and Holland and England, all these countries began to form. It's our modern, essentially, Europe. They didn't have one big empire. They had all these different countries. So here's what's crazy. What we thought was impossible a hundred years ago, you, you do know that this phase of the vision has pretty much already happened times two. Let me show you. It's not the greatest image, but it comes from Shutterstock. You'll see this is currently our European Union in in Europe. Let me let me read to you what Wikipedia has to say about the European community. The European Union is a political economic union of 24 member states that are located primarily in Europe. The EU policies aim to ensure the free movement of people, goods, services, and capital within the internal market. Passport controls have been abolished and a monetary union have been established. In other words, what we thought near impossible 100 years ago, heck, 50 years ago, World War II, 
happened basically right there. World War II was these countries fighting each other. In Spain, you had the, the dictator Franco. In Italy, you had the dictator Mussolini. And in Germany, you had the dictator Adolf Hitler. And they were all fighting against each other, killing one another. Who would have ever thought in the 1940s, 1950s, that this group of nations would come together as one? If you've ever vacationed in Europe, there's no borders anymore between the countries. There's the same monetary system. The only thing that is distinguishing the countries now is their language. That's it. This has already happened to some extent. And what scripture seems to prophesy is that what was the former Roman Empire, that right there, 10 of these countries will will form some super coalition, some super government. And from that comes stage three. And this is stage three. Let's put it up there. The Antichrist will become their leader and thereafter the world's leader. Many theologians believe that the Antichrist, uh, it seems to make sense, would come from one of these countries, become the leader of this great coalition and then thereafter become the leader of the world. I, I don't know if that's true, but it's very clear that the Roman Empire, as described by Daniel, is broken up into three stages. The Roman Empire conquers the world. Ten countries from the former Roman Empire form a coalition. And step number three, the Antichrist shows up on the scene. And he becomes the leader of everyone. Daniel 7, 24 and 25. After them, another king will arise. That's the Antichrist. He will speak against the Most High. That's God. And he will oppress his holy people. That's you. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time. That's what we believe is the great tribulation. Daniel chapter 7, and it gets deeper. If you want to go there and dig deep even more, there's a lot more in there. But that's what we think is happening. These major empires in history leading up to the last one, the Roman Empire, with its three steps and its three stages. Now, jump to Revelation 13. If you have your Bible's last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 13 gives us his agenda. What is he going to do? What's his point? What's the goal? Okay. Um, there's three things he tries to do, but first of all, I want you to notice, see if you see anything familiar as revelation chapter 13 starts, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns. There it is. And seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns and each head, a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard had feet like a bear and mouth like that of a lion. Does that sound familiar? It's almost an overlap of what Daniel sees in chapter 7. But in this case, talking about the same subject matter, he breaks down for us the agenda. What is this man, this individual going to do? Okay, let's keep reading. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his authority. Just so you're clear, the dragon in Revelation 13 is very clearly Satan And the beast is very clearly the Antichrist. The Antichrist becomes the leader he is because of his authority is delegated to him by Satan. Now watch what happens when this authority is delegated. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Here's what theologians speculate might could happen, right? This Antichrist, the beast, gets some sort of a wound. And some people have speculated there may be some sort of an assassination attempt, but he survives And because he survives, he becomes even more popular, okay? The whole world is filled with wonder, right? Because he survives. And they followed the beast even more. 
What happens thereafter in Revelation 13 is they tell us what is he going to do? What is his agenda? And he has three very clear things that he's going to try and do. Number one, he's going to try and form one world government. One world government. It was given, he was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. So Christians throughout the world, everywhere, are attacked and he leads the charge. Why? Because he's given this authority. Why? The second part of the verse explains it. it. He was given authority over every tribe, authority over all people, authority over every language, and authority over every nation. He sets up a one world government. Now, I showed you a slide just a little while ago um, of the European Union. I want to show you another image of Europe, uh, but, but points up now. Let me show you. Oh, that's for afterwards, right? I'm going to wait on that. Okay, I am going ahead of myself. Uh, th- this uh, idea was not talked about until World War II. Look at what Winston Churchill said. The creation of an authoritative, all-powerful world order is the ultimate aim which we must strive Unless some effective super uh, world super government can be brought quickly into action, the proposals for peace and human progress are dark and doubtful. Now, this is World War II, England getting bombed. And Winston Churchill says, you know, the best thing that could happen to our world, the best thing that could bring about peace is that we wouldn't have nations fighting against each other, but we would have one new world order, he called it. One new big world government. After World Tour was over, people tended to forget about Winston Churchill and what he said. Except then the leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, said this. Further global progress is now possible only through a quest for universal consensus in the movement towards a new world order. But so many Christians here in America said, oh, well, that's that's the Soviet Union. That's Russia. They're the bad guys. Certainly, we don't want to do what they're doing, you know. Um, and then uh, a while back, for the first time, one of our presidents started to say the exact same thing. Watch. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order can emerge, a new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, East and West, North and South, can prosper and live in harmony. A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. And today that new world is struggling to be born. A world quite different from the one we've known, a world where the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle, a world in which nations recognize the shared responsibility for freedom and justice. You you do know every single president since the first George Bush, every single one has talked about the same concept, every single one. They've all proposed an idea that, you know what, we're the, the, the last great superpower left, but the best way to run a world The best way to make sure we all get along is we should have one government, one world order, everybody working together, everybody getting along. Now, in principle, there's nothing wrong with that. But again, many people that study God's word begin to see the stages for someone 
taking over what many people have talked about since Winston Churchill and saying, I'm the leader of this new world government. The Antichrist uh, is, is taught, and we're taught in, in Scripture that the Antichrist will be able to do what no other politician and diplomat is able to do, bring peace between the Arabs and the Jews. And that will be the crescendo of everybody going, oh my goodness, if he can be peace between those people, he, he should be in charge. He should run the whole world, basically. Of course, at the very end, he breaks his peace agreement with, with Israel, and, and that leads to the very final battle that we talked about last week, the Battle of Armageddon. But his number one agenda, nothing happens without that first step. One world government. Now, I had jumped ahead of it just a second ago. I talked to you about the European Union. Uh, what you may not know is what they're trying to do to enhance the European Union. Let me show you this next slide. What you have in blue is the current nations in the European Union. Just, what, three months ago, uh, England voted to break away from the European Union, but they are technically still in blue. But what you have in green is all the other countries that have applied to be part of that government and part of that union. And what is happening is that that is growing. And again, many people look to this as the beginning of an expanded, uh, basically world government. So what I'm telling you is it seems it seems like the wheels are in motion to set the stage for this one world government. Once that's set in place, step number two is a piece of cake. It seems the most logical thing to do. You have one world government. Step number two, one world economy. One world economy. Why, why would we have different, different kinds of monetary systems? You know, the dollar and the euro and the, all these different. Let's have one, one currency, right? That'll, you know, make it so much easier in terms of trade and so much easier in terms of going to other countries and, you know, never, you're not to change your money and all that. Uh, but it goes beyond that. We talked about it week one, that the Bible seems to suggest that in the end times, we will transition to a cashless society where you're not using coins and you're not using bills. Uh, of course, many of us already do that, right? I mean, most of the times I, I have little to no cash in this wallet. And anytime I have to get gas or groceries, I just use my credit card. We've already transitioned to cashless society. Many of us do our bill bill paying online. Nothing wrong with that. But what the Antichrist does is he leverages that to his own advantage. Look at what Revelation 13 says. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark. It just makes so much sense. You see, if, if you're walking around with a wallet, David, someone can steal this from you. Well, here's what we're going to do. Instead of having, uh, you know, a chip or a, a, a number on your credit card, we're going to get rid of that and we're just going to put it on your on your for, uh, on your wrist or on your forehead. And see, then no one can no, no one can rob from no, no one can rob you. Right. No one can steal your purse. No one, it makes so much sense. Right. You go to the grocery store, you go anywhere, you just scan your wrist. You don't have to scan a credit card. Is there anything evil with going to a cashless society? No. But the Antichrist seems to want to take advantage of it and puts a mark on you. But the mark in and of itself also shows your allegiance to him as the world leader. Watch. You will receive a mark on your right hand and on their forehead. They could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. So you're making an allegiance to this one world government, one world economy where he's the leader. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. Find out who the Antichrist is. For it is the number of the man, and his number is 666. 
six, six. If you've ever wondered where we get that number from, it's right there. Revelation chapter 13. Now, many people have speculated over the years, right? It tells us you should figure out who is the Antichrist based upon his number, right? And I'm going to show you real quickly some of the ideas that people have had. Where, how do you calculate this number? What does that mean? Option number one, let's put it up there. All you got to do is count the number of letters in their name, right? So just count them. David has how many letters in his name? And if he's got six, then look at his middle name and look at his third name. Just count the letters in their name. And that's how you're going to find out who the Antichrist is. Of course, when people did this, one of the most popular individuals that people said, oh, my goodness, he might be the Antichrist because he has six letters, right? Six letters. Six. You know who it was, right? Let me show you. You didn't know that, did you? It's probably not him because he died, right? You know what I'm saying? But six letters is first name, six letters is second name, six letters is third name. It, it doesn't seem like this is the smartest way to try and figure it out. Another very interesting way that is incredibly popular back in biblical times is that the alphabet was also given numerical value. Let me show you what I mean. So every letter is given a numerical number. This was very popular in Egypt. It was very popular in, in, in Israel. Very, in fact, our Morse code to some extent is based upon each letter having dashes and dots and, and you basically are assigning a value to it. And this was incredibly popular during the times of Christ. Now, when they did this and you use their numbers and their calculations, there was one individual that every Christian seemed to go. That's it, because it adds up to six, six, six. You know who I'm talking about? It's this guy right here. When you took his name and assigned numerical numbers. Emperor Nero came out to six, six, six. And who you can't almost blame a Christian for thinking that that was the Antichrist. Emperor Nero, if you don't know your history, was the Adolf Hitler in the ancient times. You want to know what he did to Christians in Rome? He would put them on a stake and light them on fire so he could have streetlights. That's Nero. He was a vile, vile man that hated Christians. Who could have? Of course, he has to be right. Uh, uh, some other kind of what I would considered to be extreme Christians that that get into this maybe just a little bit too much, right? Uh, they have taken the same numerical system, assigned numbers, and they go, you guys got it all wrong. It's not a person. You got it all wrong. You want to know who the Antichrist is? Let me show you. The word computer adds up to 666, right? Apple computers are great. No, they're not. They're the Antichrist. And again, there's this crazy Christians, right? They, they take this just a little bit too far, right? Um, probably what, what most theologians tend to go with as a better explanation would be this last one. Um, numericals are understood symbolically. In scripture, the number seven tends to represent holiness. It tends to represent perfection. It tends to represent deity, okay? And, and if God were given a number, his number would be 777. Perfection. God is the father is perfect. He gets a seven. The son, he's perfect. He gets a seven. The Holy Spirit, he's perfect. They get a seven. And what 6-6 represents is someone trying to make an effort to be God but falling short. They're imperfect. 666. You know what? Honestly, I don't spend that much time talking about, uh, talking about it, thinking about it. It'll just be so obvious when it happens. I, I don't spend my nights trying to calculate who the Antichrist is. 
Okay, and I don't think you should either. Don't focus on him. Focus on Jesus. Okay, that's the key right now for us as believers. Okay, Um, okay. Uh, The last step, one world government, one world economy, and the key that brings it to a crescendo is one world religion. Revelation 13, 8, uh, verse 4 and verse 8. People worship the dragon, Satan, because he had given authority to the beast, the Antichrist. They also worship the Antichrist, the beast. And they ask, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? All inhabitants from the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life will worship the Antichrist. To me, it makes sense. You have the most successful politician and diplomat ever to have lived. He's incredibly likable and charismatic. He's a fantastic communicator. He's the first individual to have brought peace to the Middle East between Jews and between Arabs. And then he stands before a TV audience and he says, you know what I think is wrong with the world? You know what I think is all has caused all the wars in the world? Religion. Think about it. Religion has caused all these wars. And underneath all these wars, there's religious ideals, Jews against Arabs, Christians against or Protestants against Catholics. Right. Um, there's all this religion underneath the war. You want to know what the problem with the world is? It's religion. And ultimately, the biggest problem with the world is God. How could you all be so stupid to think there's a higher power? What I'd like to suggest is let's put God to the side Let's stop worshiping this fancy, fruitful idea of a God. Let's get rid of that. Let's not worship God anymore. What I'd like to suggest, says the Antichrist, worship me. It's the ultimate form of what you and I call humanism. The idea that we humans act like and think like we're actually all that. That will be his goal. Don't worship Jesus anymore. Don't worship God anymore. Don't worship Allah anymore. All the world religions, get rid of all of them. Worship me, the Antichrist. That is what he's striving towards. Okay? Okay, let's shake this off. Like I said, people like me teaching on this. I think it's important that we learn it, but uh, there's a reason I only do it once every 10 years. What are we going to do with all this? Where do we go from here? Is there any application to this? Of course. Scripture always has application to what we're talking about. I don't want you to write these next ones down. The application this morning actually comes in the form of a question. Let me show you this next couple things that you could think of. The point of end times is always to challenge you. Be ready and help others be ready. That's the whole point. Every time the end times is brought up, are you ready? Now, one way we help others get ready, bullet point number two, share the gospel with others. You know, the, 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 the chaplain for the A's that we're bringing in, that's not just for us to have fun. You know that, right? And we will have fun. I've talked to him. He's very interesting, very entertaining. He brings the gospel in, but that's really not for you. It's for us to have another reason, another excuse to try and share the gospel with people we care about. They're not going to come for Pastor Dave, but they might come for someone associated with the A's. It's our job to constantly trying to figure out a way to share the gospel. The third one, and we talked about it every week. We will talk about it. Live righteously. The end times challenges you get ready. The last one is kind of a new one. Brace yourself for tough times. They're coming. I, I, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but as best as I can tell, this book 
tells us we will have to go through difficult and challenging and, and, and suffering. Get ready for it. Get ready for it. Persevere. Grow your faith. Challenge okay, yourself to become the person God wants you to be. But your application for this morning, I'm going to take a little bit different direction, and I want you to write this question down. Let's put it up on the screen. Is there anyone or anything in your life that is like an antichrist to you? Now, remember the definition of antichrist. Antichrist is an individual who will want to substitute, be a substitute of Christ for you. That person's not on the scene yet. I don't know if they're born yet or not. I don't really care at this point. But for us this morning, let's forget about that individual and let's talk about the definition. Is there anyone or anything in your life that is a substitute for Christ? You know, this is a big deal to God. It's such a big deal. One of the commandments, he says, you shall have no other gods other than me. You shall have nothing and no one else that becomes a substitute for the position that I deserve in your life. I deserve to be number one, the most important, highest priority in your life. Anyone else becomes number one. They are like a God to you. They are like an antichrist to you. They have become a substitute for where Christ needs to be. So I'm going to ask you again. Is there anything in your life that acts like a substitute, like an antichrist to you? Can I give you some ideas? Some of us at times have allowed our careers to do that. I'm not talking about the people that have to work on Sunday morning because there are many, many of us, including myself, that do. But there are some of us that have allowed our careers and our jobs. Yeah, no, pastor, I can't serve at the church. Yeah, no, I can't be part of a small group. I can't go to you. Well, why? Because my job. And we've allowed our career to take over, to control and to become literally a God to us. Money, power, pleasure, family. Family comes number one. Really? Because that's not what I read in scripture. Now, is family, should it be important to you? Absolutely. But your family can become a God to you, small g. Your family can become a substitute for the position of priority that only God deserves. You know, there's many other things that I see as a pastor. Don't, don't take this the wrong way. I'm, I, my job is to challenge you. You want, want me to tell you one of the modern gods and substitutes that I see in the Christian church? You want, you want me to tell you what it is? Traveling sports teams. You know what I'm talking about? Hey, my daughter's on a traveling sports team. She's pretty good at what she does. And once every great while, she's not with us on Sunday morning. But there is no way, no how that I will allow my daughter or any of my kids to substitute Jesus, God, and church for sports. Let me just say this as tactfully as I can. I've seen your kids play sports. They're not good enough to play pro. They just aren't. I love your kids and I enjoy watching them. But even if they are, you tell me, is it more important for them to be a shortstop for the Milwaukee Brewers or is it more important for them to be their soul to be committed to Christ? I'm not against sports. You know, I'm a sports fanatic. But 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 more than anything else, God's number one in my life and nothing substitutes that one more time. Don't let anything be like an antichrist to you. Don't let anything substitute the position of Christ in your life. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this is heavy material and difficult stuff. And uh, 
you know that in a way I'm kind of glad it's done. But Father, I also know that uh, you want us to study this. You want us to be aware of what's happening. You don't want us to catch us by surprise. So, Father, I guess for today, for this coming week, Father, help us be the kind of people that make sure your son Jesus Christ is always number one. Let us not allow a person, a pastime, a hobby, nothing to become a substitute for who Jesus Christ is. Father, we love you. We want to please you. Allow this study on the end times to prompt us to share our faith and to reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. May it push us to live righteously and live live a holy a holy life that is pleasing to you. Father, we have one more week in this series. Continue to stretch our minds, continue to build our souls. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus name. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening.